morning. The title of the sermon this morning is Seek the Things Above. Our text is Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses. Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us together this morning. We thank you for allowing us to uh, look into your word. And we ask that uh, your spirit, who uh, knows each of our hearts uh, better than we each know our own, uh, would bring from this text what is uh, appropriate to each conviction where conviction is needed and uh, encouragement where encouragement is needed. We ask that you'd be present with us this morning. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen. Well, chapter 3 begins in the theological deep end. Um, so as we look at the text this morning, uh, it's going to be really theologically heavy at the beginning, and then as we move through it's going to get more and more practical, and by the end, we're going to be talking about things that we can actually go home and do. So let's begin in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ. These verses start with one of the most central tenets of our faith, resurrection. We believe and recite the Apostles' Creed week by week. Uh, we say that we believe in the resurrection of Jesus and in our own bodily resurrection on the Day of Judgment. But what does Paul mean when he said, you have been raised with Christ? I think most of us usually think of resurrection as entirely future. Maybe we're familiar with the passage and so we hold it true as being a theological category, maybe acknowledging that there is an already and not yet aspect to resurrection. But I don't think we understand it well enough to have made it part of the way we speak. I know I haven't said any, to anyone recently um, that I'm doing this or that because I have been raised with Christ. So first of all, what is resurrection? Just a few uh, brief points. Number one, to state the obvious, we have not been raised literally. We're not Lazarus. We were not with Ezekiel in the Valley of Dry Bones or one of the saints who came back after Jesus' resurrection. So whatever has happened to us, it's not bodily resurrection. Secondly, resurrection presupposes some kind of death. So when a baby's born, we don't call it resurrection. If we've been raised with Christ, we must have died in some sense. So just in the previous chapter, Paul said we were dead in our trespasses, 
He also said that we die to the elemental uh, spirits of this world. Uh, and he says uh, later on in verse 2 uh, that we have died. So what is resurrection about? It's about living a new kind of life. Having been raised, we don't just go back to what we were doing before. When our bodies are raised, we will live a new kind of life in the presence of God. But even now, our spirits, which were dead in sin and slaved to the principles of the world, through resurrection, are now alive and free to live a new kind of life here and now. Paul says this explicitly in Romans 6.4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In the rest of our text this morning, Paul will be telling us how to live that new life. One more point about resurrection. Um, our spiritual resurrection happens at conversion and is initiated by faith. Just look briefly at uh, chapter 1 of Colossians, um, verses 21 and, uh, to 23. He says this, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that's death, he has now reconciled, there's conversion, by the body of flesh, by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach uh, before him, there's the new life, if indeed you continue in the faith. Um, so the, the idea is we're continuing the faith, faith initiated, and we continue uh, living by faith. So second major point, our resurrection is real. This is kind of a subtle point. So I want to start by saying what it's not. Paul did not look at the life of a believer and say, I want to describe what happens to a person from the time before they were converted to after. And I want to think up a good metaphor for that. Maybe washing a car. Mm, what about uh, building a house? Oh, I know what's better. I'll call it resurrection. There's a, uh, there's a thrift store near our house, and I always think it's hilarious how they organize their shelves. So on one shelf, they put all of the yellow things. So it's yellow cups and yellow vases and yellow boxes and yellow knickknacks on one shelf, and then you have the blue cups and the blue vases and the blue boxes and knickknacks on the other I mean, I think the cups should go together, but okay, that's just me. Um, they, the things have to be organized somehow. We've declared that the organizing principle is, is color, bowls and boxes are the same. We're just picking a label and we're slapping it on there. So that is not what's happening here. Paul has not picked some random feature of our experience of conversion and decided to lump it in with resurrection. I'm saying that what has happened to us is actually resurrection. 
Now that means that we need to understand resurrection as a bigger idea than how we often think of it. It is the same power that the Spirit of God exercises toward a dead body to make it live, that he exercises in the soul to make it live and set it in relationship to God. You, as a believer, have already experienced real resurrection. McLaren says this, By faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought into such a true, deep union with him, as that, in no mere metaphorical or analogous sense, but in most blessed reality, there comes into the believing heart a spark of the life that is Christ's own, so that with him we do live, and from him we do live a life cognate with his. The life of Christ doesn't just show up in our lives at conversion. I want to be clear, that's what's happening in our text. We, we were raised with Christ at our conversion. But for just a minute, I want to broaden our view a little bit and just think about the fact that as believers, our life begins to look like Christ. There's a quote from Tennyson that I always think of in connection with this. It's from Idols of the King. So uh, King Arthur has just been crowned Uh, The knights of the round table have just pledged their allegiance to him. Um, A woman is describing this scene years later, and she says this. I beheld from eye to eye through all their order flash a momentary likeness of the king. The life of Christ doesn't just show up in our lives at our conversion. It doesn't just show up at neat, identifiable milestones in the Christian life. I think every once in a while something will happen or we'll find ourselves in a situation and all of a sudden we'll see a momentary likeness of the king. Look at what happened to Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So Paul is talking about his experience of death and resurrection. Only now it has shown up in his life as being delivered out of affliction. What's going on? Paul recognized in that event a likeness to the king. This happens all the time in scripture. I had a huge long list. But um, let's look at just one more. This is from Acts. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Do those words sound familiar. It's almost exactly what Jesus said from the cross. Through all our order, there flashes momentary likeness to the king. Sometimes we'll see it in our own lives, like Paul. Sometimes we'll see it in someone else's life, like Luke writing about Stephen. And it's not always death and resurrection. We may be in conversation and hear 
the challenges of the Pharisees. Or we may be sharing the gospel and find that we have helped the blind to see. And as we do what this text tells us, and we seek the things above, we become more and more like him until the day we see him as he is. So let's go back directly to the text. Um, Notice that being raised, in the sense it's used here, is not something that we're seeking. It's something that's already happened. So the word if there, he says, if you've been raised with Christ, it has the idea of because or since. It It assumes that the thing is true. The way that we're being told to live is how to live in a way appropriate to our new status. One of the uh, first things I noticed shortly after Clara was born, that she was her own person uh, with her own personality. And that clarified for me that my job as a parent was not to create her personality, but to help her use the one that she already has. It's similar in uh, light of having been raised with Christ. It's already true. We've already been raised, but we have to learn how to live like it. To use a different metaphor, we already have the car. Paul is teaching us how to drive it. Okay, so the second part of verse 1 says, um, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. The idea is that we're always seeking something in order to obtain it. There's something that we have, having been raised, And something that we don't have, whatever it is that we're supposed to be seeking. Yet the things that we're to seek are connected to the state that we're in. Our living manifests what's happened to us. You are connected to Christ. Christ is above. Seek the above things. I want to point out that uh, Paul is connecting the idea of resurrection and ascension. He's kind of seeing that as one event here. So... When he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, the idea is that he's, he's ascended, and, um, and so since he's above, we seek the above things. We can go wrong on two sides of this. We can either forget what we already have and end up trying to earn our salvation from God, or we can forget that we need to exercise our faith constantly and instead sit and do nothing. For as busy and full of details as our lives are, we're fairly simple in the way that we mostly organize our lives around one main thing. That's why Jesus says you can't serve God of money. Of course, earthly concerns are present in everyone's life to some degree, but a person can't be centered around both. We're going to be looking later at uh, what exactly the things are that we're to seek. But a basic self-evaluation isn't complicated. Ask yourself, as a Christian, are you mostly optimizing your life around things like love, joy, thankfulness, and compassion? Or are you mostly optimizing your life around things like money and attention? So someone might think, okay, I know this. I see where we're going. Live the fruit of the Spirit. I learned this in Sunday school. Basically, I should love everyone. Got it. Check. 
But I think one of the ways that we're led astray is by letting familiarity desensitize us to uh, what's going on. My family was once at the park uh, watching a goose. And a man nearby kind of disdained the attention they were giving the goose. And he said, it's just a duck. So that phrase has become a metaphor in our household for missing the wonder of the world. Some of you know how I feel about birds. Um, but a bird, a bird was not conceived by a person. A bird was conceived by God and formed and given life. And wonder is the proper reaction to birds and everything in the natural world. But in the same way, wonder is the proper reaction to the work of God in our own lives. We know that we should be humble and compassionate, that we shouldn't lie or be angry, and it can just seem very ordinary. But Paul is laboring here to show us that we have been so bound to the divine nature that we manifest a glorious and unearthly life. By seeking the things that are above, you bring transcendent realities into manifestation in the world. Through your union with Christ, you bring things into the world that are foreign to the world. Take a worldly idea like the survival of the fittest. The survival of the fittest isn't a sinister doctrine. It's just something that's obviously the case in the world. Um, you know, if lions are, are chasing a herd, who gets picked off first? It's the weak or the sick. It's the least fit. Similarly, in corporations, who rises to the best positions? The ones who are most competent in their work and good at navigating company politics. That is, the fittest survive. This is the way the world works. But in our kingdom, the strong die for the weak. Those with money give it away to those who have nothing. Husbands serve and don't dominate and control their wives. Employers consider the well-being of their employees ahead of their own. And don't just use them for what they can get out of them. These are not small things that you do. These are the above things, the spiritual things, that will be the new realities of the coming age that we are bringing into the world now. One of the mistakes we can make in our Christian life is thinking that faith works automatically. I have faith and I know that everything comes from faith, so everything should just happen. And then we're confused when it doesn't. But the image the Bible gives us is a life of striving and struggling and seeking. So I really came to understand this from Lloyd-Jones. He was commenting on a passage where, uh, the passage where Jesus was asleep in the bottom of the boat. And there's, there's a uh, horrible storm and the disciples panic. They wake Jesus up, Jesus calms the storm, and he says to the disciples, where is your faith? The implication is not that they didn't have any faith at all. It's more like when a kid comes down in a t-shirt to go outside and play, 
in the snow. And his mom says, where is your coat? You have one. This is the time to bring it out and use it. The disciples had faith, and they should have been using it, and they weren't. We have faith. We have been raised with Christ. And Paul is saying that we need to do something with it. So how is it that we exercise our faith according to this text? Seek the things that are above. Don't mix up the process and the destination. Having been raised with Christ is only the beginning of a whole new life. Verse 2 says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. This is the second command that Paul's given in this section. First, it was to seek the things above. Now, we set our minds on things above. So there's a good bit of overlap between these two things. Seeking implies a good bit of thinking, and thinking has a view to action. Uh, when we set our mind on something, we're developing an attitude about it, uh, an opinion based on careful consideration, and we're integrating it into our lives. So first, what are the things, the, the things that are above? What are those things? So I remember reading this when I was a kid. And I wanted to do this. Set your minds on things above. So I try to picture this in my head. God on the throne, Jesus at his right hand, angels everywhere, streets of gold, crystal sea. Okay, pictures in my head. Now what? Uh, so aside from, uh, aside from being an overly literal picture of heaven, I had also completely missed the point of the instructions that Paul is giving. I had to go to Bible school to learn a very sophisticated technique that often just tells you the answer to very difficult Bible questions. The technique is called, keep reading. <laughs> uh, if you just keep reading the chapter, he, he tells you exactly what he means. So verse, uh, verse 12 and 13 say this. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. So some of the things that we're to be seeking and setting our minds on are compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, love, and thankfulness. So does that mean that everything we've been saying about our union with Christ can be reduced to a list of virtues? Have we considered all this about being raised with Christ just to say, be kind? I've noticed that many authors and thinkers and even some Christians feel more comfortable drifting into impersonal conceptions of the faith. God can be portrayed more like a force. You can acknowledge all kinds of his attributes, power, justice, even a kind of benevolence that looks like love, and it can still be impersonal. I meet a lot of uh, people who like the idea of karma, even if they don't name it that. Um, and I think it's because it provides sort of a judgment for sin. Like, things kind of come back on you. But it's impersonal. 
People can talk about Christian morality or Christian principles, which involve much of what godly living looks like. But again, it doesn't have to be personal. I started thinking about this for the first time when I was listening to Jordan Peterson's Bible lectures. He had great insights, but strictly refused to recognize God as a person. Then I started noticing the same tendency in other thinkers and authors. Then I sometimes noticed a little discomfort in speaking about God personally in the conversations I was having with other Christians. And then I saw it in myself. There's a difference between I've done something that I shouldn't have done and I have offended God. There's a difference between I'm trying to serve more and he laid down his life for me and I'm laying my life down for others. There's a difference between God and my God. I don't think many of us formally accept these views, but it's an easy direction to drift and something to watch out for. Our relationship to our God is profoundly personal, and if we're not thinking of it that way, we're missing something vital. So don't miss how personal this list of virtues is. Paul has just said earlier in the chapter that all the riches of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ. Ancient wisdom has much more to do with virtue than with knowing things. That's why Proverbs is always talking about being righteous and upright and not a proud fool. These virtues are things that Christ is. For example, the most basic definition of humility is not a proposition, but a story. Humility is, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Humility is Christ. Take love as another example. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. Love is Christ. To truly think about love, humility, thankfulness, kindness, forgiveness, compassion, patience, or meekness is to think about Christ. And to think about Christ is to think about those things. To seek those things is to seek Christ. And to seek Christ is to seek those things. This is not by any means an exhaustive list of virtues uh, or things that we're to set our minds on. In Galatians, Paul gives a similar list while dealing with similar themes, but he adds joy, peace, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. But in that text too, he emphasizes that these things come to us from God in that context from the person of the Holy Spirit. Similarly, in Philippians, he gives a list of what should occupy our minds. He says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. All of this, again, points us to Christ. Just take whatever is true as an example. Anything true points us to Christ. Anything true was an idea in the mind of God before it became tangible in the world through his word. Christ did not say, I am true, but I am the truth. Every true thing, from the natural truth that the grass is green, to mathematical truth like the Pythagorean theorem, to the most hidden spiritual truths like justification by faith, 
has its being in Christ. Nothing that was made was made without him. Every true thing was in his mind before he made it. Every piece of music we hear or painting we see says something to us about the maker. Maybe something we can't put our finger on. Every true thing says something about Christ. So even as we see the green grass or think about anything else that's true, we find ourselves thinking about the maker who is himself the truth. We could go on and on with all the other things in that text because it's Christ who is most honorable, Christ who is just, Christ who is pure, Christ who is lovely, Christ who is commendable, Christ who is excellent, and Christ who is most worthy of praise. Uh, Back in our text, Paul says that not only are we to be seeking and thinking about certain things, but there are also things that we are not to be thinking about. Of course, setting our minds on, not setting our minds on something doesn't mean that it never enters our head. Otherwise, it would be like pink elephants. As soon as you say not to think about it, that's what we're thinking about. Um, so what are the things? Uh, Paul says, uh, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died. And if we keep reading, just a few verses later, there's a parallel section where he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists exactly what the things are. This is the list. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. There are sexual overtones to this whole list. Jesus said, Everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's not enough for us to avoid particular acts of outward sin. Repentance, transformation, and holy living must take place in the inner person as well. This was Jesus' constant criticism of the Pharisees. He said they were whitewashed tombs. In other words, they were painted nicely on the outside and dead inside. He also said, clean the inside of the cup and the plate that the outside may also be clean. Even the word hypocrite meant an actor. You're doing the right actions, but it's not real. Your your mind believes something else. I think this is a little different than how we often think of a hypocrite. We usually think of someone who acts pious on Sunday and then lies, cheats, and steals the rest of the week and hope that nobody finds out. That's definitely part of it. That's definitely hypocritical. But I think the real issue of hypocrisy is not between Sunday and Monday, but between inside and outside. Even if you never lie, cheat, or steal on any day of the week, You can still be a hypocrite if, in your mind, you're coveting every person and object in sight. Is this you? Do you think that what goes on in the privacy of your own mind doesn't matter? God made your body. He also made your mind. The actions of the one are just as plain to him as the actions of the other. It says in Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. Dying to sin means not only dying to theft and immorality, 
but also dying to coveting and lust. Paul has laid out in this text what it is that we need to do. We need to set our minds on things above. This is how we fight that battle. This section about not setting our minds on things on earth can be misunderstood. The verse can seem to be teaching asceticism, a a detachment from earthly things. So the logic is, if I'm not supposed to be thinking about earthly things, then I'll give up earthly things and I'll become more godly. But this is precisely one of the things that Paul was arguing against in the last chapter. He said in verse 18, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Again, in verse 23, speaking about man-made rules, he says, These indeed have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. What's happening here? Well, whether you're focused on indulging in earthly things or denying yourself earthly things, you're still focused on earthly things. Hoarders and minimalists both think too much about their stuff. What's the solution then? Seek and set your mind on things above, not on things on earth. Verse 3 says, For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. I had all kinds of childhood misconceptions about these verses. Okay, for some reason I thought that when I read this text, that maybe if I became really godly, I would wake up to that other life and find myself in heaven with God. To state the obvious, which was not the strong point of childhood gym, having our life hidden with Christ in God does not mean that our conscious awareness is somehow transferred to heaven. We continue to use our five senses and be aware of our earthly bodies as before. Also, the change isn't about our biology and the things keeping us alive physically. The physical life of believers and unbelievers are the same. I would be very surprised if Christian cells look different under a microscope. But we need an expanded understanding of what Paul means by life. And I think we use the word life in a broader sense uh, colloquially. Uh, If someone's on the beach on a nice day with a cool drink, they might say, this is the life. If someone works constantly without time for socializing, we might say they have no life. If someone's lazy or boring, we might tell them to get a life. So I'm obviously not saying that the Bible is using the word in exactly these senses. But the true part is the recognition that life is not about biological survival, but about what's meaningful. Jesus said, life is more than food and the body more than clothing. What used to be be meaningful for us was the earthly things that Paul has been warning us against. Maybe life for us was the attention of women or men. Maybe it was about making money. Maybe it was about following rules. Maybe life was about sport and games. 
Maybe life was about anxiety. Maybe life was the perfect vacation. All of these have one one thing in common. They're all earthly. They're all things that you can see happening in front of you. But our text says that our life is now hidden. We act in the world, but our life is about something that isn't here. It's hidden. Hebrews, in Hebrews 10, the author speaks about the church that joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. One of the things that's going on here is that their life is hidden with Christ. We consider this from earth and think, this doesn't make sense. But their life is Christ. Meaning that life for them is to look like Christ. As they suffer, they see that they're like Christ and they're full of joy because this is the life. That's what my life is about. When Peter and the apostles were beaten for preaching, Luke writes, they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's not a visible life of palm trees and pina coladas. It's a hidden life, the life of Christ, which is about love and forgiveness and service and compassion and suffering and dying and resurrection and eternal glory. That's why we tend to look foolish to the world. It's not incidental. It's almost true by definition. We live by a set of rules that no one else sees and we mess up the game that everyone else is playing. Our life will not be hidden forever. Verse 4 is literal. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We have the hope of Job. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Again, from Revelation, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Again, from 1 Thessalonians, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. One more from 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Our life is hidden, but only for a little while. When he appears, everything will be made clear. That last passage I just read from 1 John deals with many of the things that Paul talked about in our text today. John goes on to talk about how we ought to purify ourselves because of the hope we have in his appearing. And that's what we've been considering today, how to purify our minds. 
And so now I want to be painfully practical in application. If we were talking about thou shalt not steal, the application would be pretty clear in two words. Don't steal. But we're dealing with the mind, and it's more difficult. So I want to break it down into things that we can actually do. If I want to go home and seek the things above, where do I start? Number one, pray. And I'm not saying this because it has to be first on the list of every list of how we apply something from the Bible. I think this is the real way that mind renewal happens. But we need to pray in a particular way. Jesus taught us to be persistent in prayer and to keep asking to the point of being annoying. Mind renewal doesn't happen instantaneously. Remember how we saw that we have been raised in the past and now we seek continually? The main way of seeking anything is to ask God for it. We need to be asking daily for the help to be thinking about how to be doing the things that Christ did, showing compassion and so on. We need to be asking for help to drive sinful earthly thoughts out of our heads moment by moment as they appear. Even if you can't do anything else, do this. Number two, give your mind some margins. This should be the easiest suggestion because it literally involves doing nothing. Don't distract yourself. Be bored. If you're standing in line or driving in the car or waiting for something or just sitting at home, don't try to fill every second with a distraction or even some useful activity. Give yourself some time to be bored and see what bubbles to the surface of your mind. Is it guilt or lust or anxiety or plans for making money? Is it wonder at creation? Is it the needs of a brother or sister? If we want to train ourselves to deliberately set our mind on particular things, what we don't want to do is rush from thing to thing in life so and be so busy that we don't know what's going on inside our heads. Having some quiet margins can be helpful for getting started. Number three, ask yourself self-evaluation questions. There are lots of lists online. Uh, John Wesley has some. Jonathan Edwards' resolutions work good for this. And there are lots of others. Um, but this is helpful for uncom uh, uncovering what you're seeking and what you're setting your mind on. But you're also actively, seek you're actively setting your minds on things above as long as you're engaged in the exercise, assuming they're good questions. Even when they weren't good questions, I found that uh, just spending time working through why I disagreed with the implications of certain things were it's just very helpful. Number four, use the scriptures in the same evaluative way. So if, for example, we were uh, just in personal devotions, reading the beginning of, of this book, Colossians, and we read, uh, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. That's a good place to pause. And think about, am I doing that? Am I always giving thanks to God for the people I'm praying for? Why not? Am I bitter toward them? Am I just reading lists of requests to God without deeply caring about what I'm saying? Or maybe the answer is, yes, I am. I think part of having sober judgment is um, recognizing that God gives us grace in particular areas. 
Number five, write. This is probably the most difficult suggestion in the list. But turning our inner experiences of heart and mind into words help to sharpen our thinking and make it more exact. Our thoughts tend to remain fuzzy in our head and then get clearer when they're on paper. And as we're trying to renew our minds and deliberately think about certain things, um, writing can be helpful for that. Number six, strategize. This can feel oddly unspiritual for some reason. Maybe we've picked up the, an idea that spiritual things have to be spontaneous. But if we're really seeking the things that are above, we need to bring all of our faculties into it, including our planning and strategizing. For example, what is a real, tangible way I can show compassion to someone like Christ did? Is there someone I need to forgive like Christ forgave me? And how can I best express that forgiveness? Number seven, change your media. Whatever you're watching or listening to, you're presumably thinking about. I listen to a lot of lectures and audiobooks, and I realize that it has a really significant impact on my thinking, but also the way I feel. So, it affects so many different things. Uh, moods. And I'm not suggesting that we need more rules about media. But watch and see how you think and feel and act afterwards. Do you feel more affection for others? Do you feel discontent? Are you inspired to be more patient and long-suffering? Are you inspired to go and try to become a millionaire? Number eight. Study virtue. If we're seeking to practice these virtues that Paul's outlined and set our minds on them, it's helpful to understand exactly what they are. It's usually hard to explain exactly what they are in just one short sentence. What is gentleness? What exactly does kindness mean? In what situations does Jesus exhibit compassion? My goal this morning wasn't so much to provide quick definitions about these things as, as much as to lay out a lifelong path. Uh, I wanted to do what the text says and say, go seek those things. Uh, there's a real problem in our culture here, though. Our, our understanding of these virtues are often so blurry and undifferentiated that love and kindness and compassion and humility all kind of blend together in our heads and we just end up trying to be nice. And it's important to sharpen our, our understanding of exactly what these things are. Uh, to close, I'd just like to read through our four verses again. I find it helpful for me after either reading or listening to uh, an exposition to return again to the text and read the, the words of the text now with um, understanding having studied it. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory.